You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. Sermon text from today is from Zephaniah, chapter 3, and verse 15. The Lord has removed your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The King of Israel, the Lord, is among you. You need no longer fear harm. This is God's word. You may be seated. Good morning. So, I know Chad kind of, the introduction did no justice. Because I am a walking conundrum. I am from the mountains of South Carolina, very proud Appalachian, and how in the world God took a bumpkin and sent him to an island chain out in the middle of the Pacific to do ministry, I still can't explain, but it happened. Um, And at any point in time, if the dialect is too thick and you find yourself in need of a translator, please see Patrick Seville. Um, Man, you don't know... How much joy this brings me. We sat in an early morning room with Dr. Keith Whitfield years ago, dreaming of days like today, dreaming of the days that we had in Hawaii and the days that are yet to come. I know I just want to you know, we can call time out on the clock because this ain't part of the sermon, but I just want to say, <laughs> I want to say something for you and your, as your, to edify your pastor and your church, you as his body. This man has prayed for you long before today. This man has loved you long before today. This man wept, and as we say in the mountains, that preacher found himself bent across the stump in the midnight hour with, the head, with, the, with his head wet from the midnight dew. You have no idea the joy that it brings us as church planners, as missionaries, as pastors to labor and fall in love with people that we have never met for years. And then God blesses us by letting us see your face. It's like holding a baby in your arms for the first time. Amen? And so these men, they love you. And I'm thankful that you love them. And I'm thankful that you love them well enough to know that uh, y'all are okay with some guy coming up here that looks like a park ranger to talk to you for a little bit. Uh, so I told Chad, my style of, of, of teaching has, has kind of changed being in the context that I've been in uh, for the past almost five years in Hawaii. Lord and his kindness sent us to the island of Kauai and everybody on the island chain refers to the island of Kauai, if you're a local, as the Redneck Island. So we fit in right... <laughs> Right, nice. And uh, so out there, we have a, a, a phrase, um, and it's, it's kind of the equivalent to, you know, in the mountains in the south, you know, it's kind of old way of going, old way of talking, it's kind of gone, gone away. You'd see somebody hadn't seen in a while, and you say, hey, man, how's your mama and them? And uh, out in Hawaii, we say, hey, brother, how's it? And you, you want to talk story for a little bit? Uh, yeah, come on, let's do it. And somebody asks you how you're doing, you want to talk story, talk about, 
life and you legitimately want to know, you know? When somebody asks you in, in the hills or in the deep south, how's your mom and them? They legitimately, legitimately want to know what's going on in your life. And so talking story took on a big part. And one, of, one in five people in Hawaii was functionally illiterate. So imagine growing up in a place where all the street signs in Hawaiian and not being able to read them. Imagine being a missionary and living in Hawaii with your family, being able to read all right and still not being able to understand the street signs. And so when we were there, the, 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 like talking with people rather than talking at and to people, Bible storying, yet being rooted into the scripture, it took on a different light. And so I'm going to tell you, I'm going to remind you of, of one of my heroes of the faith, Charles Spurgeon. He said, you know, man loved the Lord. He loved the church. He loved turning out pastors. And he said, you know, we don't need, you know, our seminary is not producing fine gentlemen, polished gentlemen. No, no, no. Rather, our seminary is producing hard-working, gospel-centered men. And that's what hopefully we labor to be as your pastors and as a guest speaker today. And he also said that don't, uh, we need plain pastors. We need ordinary pastors. We, the language of the pastor doesn't need to be that of the university. It needs to be that of the universe. It needs to be that of the, of, of the wood shop. It needs to be that of the plant. It needs to be that of the community. And he said, don't, uh, and keep in mind, he's in England at this time. He said, so it may very well be those brash, blunt, Anglo men that are blood, the blue collar to be plain and ordinary pastors. And I'm sitting there, I was like, thank you, Jesus. That's, that's me. So I feel like when we go through the Old Testament, now we're in the sermon, just in case you're wondering. When we go through the Old Testament, we have a tendency to, I have a phrase and some of my buddies understand it, like, man, we love to seminary the heck out of stuff. Man, we will... We'll get, genealogies, the, a genealogy, I will get my nerd on hardcore in a genealogy, you know. And we love to just be really, like, academic and, like, oh, like, here's, let's dive into this Hebrew word. And there's a place for that. Don't get me wrong. And sometimes when we read the scriptures, if we go that far and we push that, that, that wagon, wagon too far down the road, then we end up enjoying the text rather than the speaker of the text. And I ain't talking about me. I'm talking about him. We end up enjoying the academic exercise like, oh, we have enlightened ourselves rather than tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. And we are here today to taste and see that the Lord is good. So I am not going to preach at you. I like a church that laughs at me. I like a church that talks back to me. Let's talk story. Let's talk story about Jesus today. Let's be in this together. You know, when we, read, we also read the Old Testament, it is uh, it's trying to read the Old Testament. I mean, we got a bunch of names that I can't pronounce. We got a bunch of cultural things that makes no sense. And then, you know, we have words in Hebrew, and I can, I can, I mean, I know, I know, I know Hebrew well enough to prepare a sermon and and study. I know Paquito Hebrew. That's Spanish for I know a little Hebrew. And um, so we can get through this and just look at it as academic exercise, or we can go into the Old Testament looking at a God who is full of anger, full of hatred for sin, full of wrath, and full of judgment. Amen. Who's excited about that? 
But then we can also see that this God is full. He is, he is slow to anger and quick to forgive. We can see that he is just, and he, he will not for a second let uh, 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 pardon the, the unrighteous. He will not for a second turn his back on the hurting and the downtrodden. We can look at this God who holds these two attributes completely in holistic unity, whereas in a fallen world, we have to hold his justice and his wrath and his anger and his love and his grace and mercy. In our feeble mind, we hold it in tension, but God holds it together in and within, uh, in and within of himself in complete unity. And so then we can look at this picture of God in the scripture and we can say that is our king that is our king and it should make our hearts swell with pride and with joy and be we should be enamored with Jesus enamored with the God of heaven when we read text like this so now after the longest intro of your life Thank you for letting me be with you. We're going to do something called Bible story and Bible walking. We're going to talk story about this, this passage of Scripture. We're going to take our time and hurry up as we go through it. So I, I love you guys. Let's look at Jesus together today. Uh, it's going to be the best four hours of your life, I promise. Okay? And so <laughs> I'm joking. But we've got to start in order to understand this because the God of the Old Testament can really turn us off, right? God, the Old Testament looks like a jerk. We're like, ooh, he is just ticked off all the time. And then we have some scholars out there who are double parked in the Twilight Zone, and they say he's just an abusive father and blah, 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 blah. And you know what? Nothing could be further from the truth. He is God. And so if you're wanting to, if you're expecting a PhD exercise today or real academic, like, you ain't going to get that. I ain't going to get that. What you're going to get is a redneck that was saved by Jesus Christ and never got over it. And so when we look in the book of Zephaniah, we've got to start in Genesis. In the beginning, God created. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created it ex nihilo out of nothing. So therefore, he is the beginning of all things. And in him, all things hold together, like it says in the book of Colossians. So therefore, if he is the prime catalyst to every event in all of history, in all of creation, then he is also the sovereign over every atomic particle, every neutron, every other scientific word that I can throw out to make me sound like I'm a professional at this. He has complete sovereignty and control over all of it. And then for some reason, he chooses a people in the nation of Israel to dis display his goodness to the rest of the world. And you can say, well, what makes them so special? Here's the secret. Nothing. Nothing. They were jacked up as a football bat, and God chose them to display his glory. God has a thing for hanging out with broken people. God has a thing for loving the unlovable. God has a thing for being a friend to sinners. Out of, if he creates out of nothing, then he is going to redeem brokenness to show his great power and might. So Abraham Kuyper said there is not one ounce of creation over which God himself has not declared and exclaimed, Mine. He is king he is sovereign. So then when we fast forward and we get to the minor prophets and we see this God who is really ticked off and really upset about this three-letter word called sin, 
we have to we have to wrap our head around this because then when we get to Jesus in the New Testament, we're like, you know, Jesus is a lot more chill than his dad. He's loving everybody. He's telling you to love everybody. He's hanging out with youngins. You know, he's he's an ultimate gentleman. You know, but like his dad, mmm, boy. And then when we look at this, Jesus and this Old Testament father, and we all go throughout the entirety of the Gospel of John, what does Jesus say over and over? I have come to do the will of my father. Mm, we got a church talking. All right. So I've come to do the will of my father. I do not speak on my own accord and speak my words, but I speak the words of my and then you're like, hold on, wait. your daddy was the one that said, like, go up in there in the Old Testament and kill the dog, grandma, and everybody, and don't take anything back with you. And that's the God that you're coming, that you're saying sent you? And he's like, yep, that's my pops. I and the Father are one. And we're sitting here, and Jesus goes, dies on the cross, lays his life down. And then here we are 2,000 years later, and we're all up in the book of Zephaniah. And it starts off like this. The word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will completely remove all things from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Put that on a Christmas card. I will completely remove the things of the earth, off the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Love the Morrises. Happy holidays. It keeps on going. Verse 2, I mean verse 3, I will remove man, beast, I will remove the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea, and the ruins along with the wicked. And I will cut off a man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Verse 4 of chapter 1, so I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Whoa. What type of God is this? If this is the God that sends Jesus to rescue the broken, to save the sinner, you know, to love the unlovable, well, like, why is he so ticked off? Well, it tells us plainly in the scripture why he's ticked off. Let's think about this. Let's apply this. Psalm chapter 5, verse 5. For the Lord hates iniquity and hates those who practice iniquity. Sounds a far cry from love the sinner, love the saint. I mean, hate the sin, love the, love the sinner, right? Far cry. Because what this three-little-letter word of sin is, means that you, I, and all, because of our first father, Adam, we are all guilty of, shout out to my boy R.C. Sproul, cosmic treason. We are born under the curse. Our will is not free. It is bound to choose self and sin all the time until it is freed by Christ. So that means given the chance, we're always going to choose bad. If we don't have Jesus, we're always going to choose the stuff that keeps us mired down in our jacked upness. And God hates the sin. Why? Because the sin separated us from him in the garden. Let's go back to Genesis. And Jesus, I mean, and God would walk with Adam and Eve in the what? Cool of the day. Oh, remember the old hymn? And he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his friend but Mary Poppins symbol crash <laughs> imagine that walking with God in the cool of the day and then sin comes in and severs that complete perfection and union with God 
And sin comes in and severs that. And then creation, all of creation, begins to hunger and thirst for the very cancerous nature that is killing them and separating them from God. And now we see in all of Scripture in Genesis and we see in Zephaniah chapter 1 that even the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, thank God I put that in the right order, nothing is left untouched by sin. God's creation is like a ball of yarn that is over time, because of sin, slowly coming unraveled. And he hates sin. He hates the enemy. He hates the thief. He hates the sin that is crouching at our door, and we must learn to rule and to have dominion over it. He hates it so much, as we're going to see, that a sacrifice is called for. Jump down to verse 7 of chapter 1. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near, for the Lord has prepared a sacrifice, and he has consecrated his guest. Now, as you read on through chapter 1, basically, when he says a sacrifice is prepared, the readers are sitting there like, this is it. He's about to get, we're about to get smited. We're about to get smited all up in here. He's about to wallop us. We are the sacrifice. He's straight like, we toast. We are done. Because what has happened in the book of Zephaniah is these people have ran headlong into sin. Headlong into it. They're swearing by other gods. They're worshiping in the high places. They're apathetic. They're doubtful that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be who he says he is. They're mired down in the muck. And God says, I'm coming. I'm coming. It's kind of like that scene in Wide Earth. You know, you tell him I'm coming. And heck's coming with me. And God's saying, watch out now. Watch out. And I'm about to unleash my judgment on everything because I hate sin. You have sickened me. And he goes on throughout the rest of verse 1. And in verse 14, he talks more about this day of the Lord. Near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it, the warrior cries out bitterly. You will never understand Christ as Savior until you understand Father as warrior. And you understand that the, both of them are the same person doing the same thing. We have this motif of, of Christ the warrior all throughout Scripture. We have, we have Jesus doing battle with evil, doing battle with sin, doing battle with those who practice iniquity. We have him coming back in Revelation, destroying and rightwising everything by the what? The power of the sword of his mouth. He hates sin. He hates those who live in it. It's a big problem. It requires a sacrifice. You see, we think this Jesus is just some really cool dude that's just really chill with everybody, and he'll take us right where we're at, and that is true to an extent. He loves you. He'll take you right where you are at. You don't have to change your T-shirt before you come to Jesus. You don't have to clean yourself up before you come to Jesus. That is on him to do. It is not necessarily you coming to Jesus because dead men can't walk. It is him pulling you up out of the grave and declaring over you, mine. Therefore, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Like he says in Jeremiah, for you will hear behind you a voice in the wilderness calling out, this is the way of the Lord. Walk in it. And then you have the same prophets. You have moments in your time, like in the book of Jeremiah, where you feel like following Jesus is nothing but a 
sham. When you are so wrapped up in New Testament life and life together and doing church together that you will look at the God of the Old Testament and you'll say, that can't be true because he sounds mean when it comes to how he interacts with sinners. He sounds vengeful. He sounds wrathful. He sounds like he is judge and jury. Well, the New Testament tell us that the judge is standing at the door. And he has every right to be that way. Why? Because he is creator. He is king. He is king. And we cannot say all hail the power of Jesus' name as our king and enjoy the benefits without understanding exactly how big of a king he is. And if he hates sin so much that it's going to require a sacrifice and you are so jacked up that you cannot come to God on your own, you are so sinful that there is nobody righteous, no, not one, Who's it going to be? This day of the Lord is twofold here in the book of Zephaniah. He's talking about immediate and swift punishment and judgment on Israel and Judah and all of their surrounding neighbors. And this guy's talking so the people are listening. And he said, this day of the Lord is coming. But then we know as we read scripture as a whole, every word whispers the name of Jesus. Every Bible is pointing us to the coming of the day of the Lord. And this day of the Lord has come and is still coming and will come again. When Jesus cried out in a manger and we think, oh, silent night, do you not realize on that silent night, whenever a baby cried in a manger, the gates of hell, hell rattled and trembled, demons screamed, whenever angels burst forth from the sky and went to the lowliest of the low, the untrustworthy, the shepherds, and, and it was old little town of Bethlehem, that hell was scared to death because the king had come and this day was coming to fruition. So now we have the, the, the Jews here in Judah. They're listening to Zephaniah. And he says, hey, watch out. This day of the Lord. A lot of bad stuff going to happen. A day of wrath, that is, is the day. A day of trouble and distress. A day of destruction, desolation. A day of darkness, gloom. A day of clouds and thickness. And as he goes through this, guess what? These Jewish people are sitting back thinking, man, I'd hate to be them people. Don't you ever think about that? Like, some of you in this room today could be like, man, I hope so-and-so is listening to this sermon. I hope, I hope, mm, I hope they got it. Jen and I laughed when we went to church we met, we were on staff at. I was on staff at. We weren't on staff. I was on staff. We weren't that type of church. Um, uh, the church we met at, we had this one woman, elderly woman, that sat like halfway up in the front row, and we kind of sat in the middle. And preacher, man, man, he'd be carrying the wood. You know, he'd make a point. I'd be like, come on, amen, something like that. And every time this woman sat in the front, she would go, and just look back and give us like, how dare you speak in the Lord's house? And I was like, mm. she didn't really like me. I don't really know. I don't, I've never, I mean, I should have talked to her more, I reckon. I don't know. But, but I know I was kind of like her, her, I hope he hears this type of guy, you know. I mean, at that point in time, I had nice, my church clothes were like, I had church going overalls. You know, uh, my wife has done a lot with this. Anyway, so you're sitting here and we all like, we can be like the Jews in Zephaniah and say, man, I hope they get this. I hope so-and-so's listening to this. It's always the other guy's fault, right? How childish is that in our faith? It's always somebody else's fault. We sit back and I hear, I got, a, I got you guys got a good report card from your pastor because I, if I, I'm a guest speaker someplace, I'm always like, hey, man to man, brother. How jacked up is your church? <laughs> he was like, man, God's doing a good thing. God's doing a good thing. And you know what? Praise God for that. So I'm not coming down on you. But be on guard for that. Protect that. You think, you think hell 
And Satan and the enemy that roars, walks around like a, uh, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking somebody to devour is happy with what's happening here in this bank building? No, he is not. This is, this is not a haven necessarily solely for the lost and broken and people who are redeemed. No, this is a military outpost that is for the kingdom of God, kicking back darkness, taking it into teeth. And like Winston Churchill said, I love a man who smiles when he fights. That is who we are called to be as the church. You're going to get your wounds. Some of them will be self-inflicted. You're going to continue to wrestle with sin. Wipe the blood off, smile, and go back swinging in the power of Jesus. Follow him. He's the king. He's the warrior that has gone before you. When you feel like, man, I feel like my God has deceived me, like it says in Jeremiah, I feel like my God has deceived me. And then the next verse, but my God goes before me like a dreaded champion, like a warrior champion. That is your king. That's why the Old Testament is important. And if now we see that this day of the Lord is coming and bad things are going to happen, like wrath is going to be poured out on sin, there is a need of a sacrifice. We are jacked up. When we're, we are lost as a turkey in high grass apart from Jesus. You know what I'm saying? And so when we look in this text, when we look in this text and we're sitting back and the Jews are like, mm, I hope them, I, these people, they're going to get it. Let's go over into chapter 2. Chapter 2 and verse 2, he says, before the decree takes effect. Man, before the decree takes effect. I can say, hey, before the decree takes effect, you're going you to be like, what's this guy talking about? But when somebody's speaking, standing up speaking on behalf of the king, that's kingly speech. That's God letting you know who, who he is. Before the decree takes effect, the day passes like shaft. Before the burning anger of the Lord comes upon you. <laughs> Look at that. And the Jews are still like, mm, that, he misspoke. That wasn't a, a you. That was a y'all. <laughs> and mm, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you, seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth, who have carried out his ordinances, seek righteousness, seek humility, perhaps. Man, I love words like that in Scripture. Man, they don't turn your crank, I don't know what will. He says, perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Perhaps. And you can say, see, this is why the Old Testament drives me crazy. You do good, you get good from God. You do bad, you get bad from God. Technically, you're not wrong. That's called Deuteronomistic Theology. Chapter 28 of Deuteronomy, right? But this gives us a glimpse into the heart of the king. Perhaps. What a beautiful word. It does not show us that God is finicky. It does not show us that God says, hey, God is not driving the car doing the daddy swat spank in the back. Hey, y'all straighten up back there. No, no, no. No. You see, just is inclined and like God will always act true to his nature, right? Amen? So he has to punish sin, amen? If it is cosmic treason and we are enmity with God, he has to punish sin. He cannot do anything else but punish sin. But if somebody cries out in true repentance, then God has to offer grace. Not because the person cried out, because they're not crying out beforehand. You don't see this. You don't, there's no preface like in the days of Noah, people began to look after the Lord. No, like in the days of Zephaniah, everybody don't know if they're coming or going. 
They're not looking for God. They're walking away from God. They're worshiping high places. They're swearing by other gods. They're apathetic. They, they, they are, some of the Jews have become functional atheists, proclaiming Yahweh as the one true Lord and then functioning in their life in doubt and despair. Man, did God really say that we heard in the garden? And so God initiates and says, hey, I'm warning you. I'm coming in. I'm coming in. I'm going to take over. I'm going to declare what's mine. But perhaps if you hear my wrath as a declaration of grace, I will forgive. Ooh, that's a big God. That's a mighty big God. And then it gets good in chapter 4. I, can't, I mean, I mean chapter, verse 4, chapter 2. I can't think of a worse time to have this verse. For Gaza will be abandoned. And the Jews are like, yeah, get them Gazans. And Ashkelon, a desolation. Yeah, guess get those Ashkelonians. I don't know how you pronounce it. And the Jews are sitting back and they're like, get them, get them, God. And what God's doing is he's declaring war on all of Israel's neighbors. And they're like, get them, God, get them, God, get them. And the coast, verse 7, and the coast will be for the remnant of the house of Judah. Look, look, look. He's going to strike down our sinful, wicked neighbors. And he's going to give us everything that belongs to them. And yeah, we've got it made in the shade. And it says in the rest of verse 7, for the Lord their God will care for them and restore their fortune. And I love the Old Testament because it completely smacks in the mouth the prosperity gospel. And it completely smacks in the mouth that if you're going to love Jesus then just be happy and love Jesus and it's okay to be dirt floor poor it holds those things in tension God you will see God will bless and restore fortunes and God will take and remove fortunes why for your good and for his glory to where he becomes your greatest fortune and to be and and, and to where you use all of your earthly fortunes to make him known the Old Testament talks about all of life. It talks about where we're at. See, isn't that us? Aren't we kind of like the Jews right now? Let's be real. Honestly, as individuals, possibly even as a church, we sit back and we worship in the high places. We keep going to that thing that we know we can't go to. As a dog returns to his vomit, so does a fool to his folly, right? You keep struggling with that sin. You keep struggling with that, that anger. You keep struggling with that whatever. And he's, God, help me, God, help me, God, help me. And you think it's a thorn in your flesh, but what it is is a bag in your hand that you just willfully pick up and return to every day. Or we're walking around like functional atheists. Yeah, I believe Jesus. Yeah, my, me and Jesus got a good thing going on. We got a good thing going on. God's going to take care of me. He's going to restore my fortunes. He's going to take care of everything, everything I need. And then we completely walk and live and move and breathe and have our being in everything but the one that we are supposed to walk and live and move and have our, breathe, our, our, our being in. We walk in a powerless life. We walk in a manner that we are not crying out every day, God, I am awake now. I'm going to need your Holy Spirit to get me out of bed. God, your Holy Spirit has gotten me out of bed. I'm going to need your Holy Spirit to walk me to that sink and brush my teeth. God, I've brushed my teeth. I really need help. This is my prayer. Picking out something to wear to work. God, give me your Holy Spirit to love my neighbors, love my, my enemies, declare your message. Let me walk in spirit and truth. God, I need your help. 
I need thee every hour. Oh, how I need thee. God, I'm exhausted and I'm home from work now. My wife's exhausted. She's home from work now. The kids are absolutely insane. I'm going to need your help, Jesus, your Holy Spirit, to empower me to love and serve my family. I've left the job that pays me financial gain, and I'm going to the job where I'm making investments for eternity. God help me. But we don't do that, do we? That's not as much as we should. I'm guilty of it. We get up, we go through the motions, we find ourselves in a mess, and we have more of a prayer life of Samson than we do of Christ. Jesus is constantly praying, weeping and agonizing. Jesus tells his disciples, pray without ceasing. And then we go about doing this Christian life our own way, our own, you know, me and Jesus got a good thing going on. And then we find ourselves with the best of intentions, doing the worst things possible. And then ultimately we find ourselves in a mess. And then a lot of our prayers sound like Samson between the colonnades of, God, use me one more time, but this time let me die with the Philistines. And so as we go through verse 2, I mean, chapter 2, uh, beyond verse 7, it starts talking about the Philistines and the Jews. Like, oh, them Philistines, man. Yeah, they didn't learn a dang thing when Goliath bucked up to us. Get them, God. Get them. Get them. And they're just enraptured in this. And then chapter 3 comes along. And God says, woe. To her who is rebellious and defiled. The tyrannical city, she heeded no voice. She accepted no instruction. She did not trust in the Lord. She did not draw near to her God. Her princes within her are roaring lions. Her judges are wolves at evening. They leave her prophet. Her prophets are reckless, treacherous men. Her priests have profaned the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. The Lord is righteous within her. And what he's doing, he's saying, I'm going to pour my wrath out on every living being around you so you know what's coming for you because you are my people who are called by my name because we have entered into a covenant relationship that I initiated and you accepted because I gave you life and hope. I led you through the wilderness. I gave you something to eat when there was nothing. I got you out of Egypt. I, and the list goes on and on and on and on, you know. Time-wise, maybe there are some, some bad examples. But I have met all of your needs, and you have turned your back on me. You see what I'm doing to your godless neighbors? I'm about to do that to you, Jerusalem. I'm about to do that to you, Judah. We got a problem. We have a problem. The rest of verse uh, 5, the pen blurred that part out, my bad. The rest of verse 5, he will do no injustice. Every morning he brings his justice to light. He does not fail. Ooh, that's a big God. That's a big king. Somebody, somebody you want to tango with? No. You know, it's funny. This is kind of heavy, so I think this is time for a joke. So laugh even if you don't like it. I have gotten throughout the years this compliment. Hey, man, you know who you look like? Who? You look like Bryce Harper. Mm. Like, yeah, if he's retired and he's gained 50 pounds, you know. 
One night I was driving through Chick-fil-A in Wake Forest, and I pulled up, and I was tired, and a little guy hits me, and he goes, hey, man, anybody tell you you ever look like Chris Kyle? And I was like, have you actually, like, you talking about, like, the movie guy, like Bradley Cooper, or, like, the actual soldier? Because I don't look like any one of them, but I get those two a lot, right? You look like, anybody tell you you look like Bryce Harper? It got so bad that one time at my work when I was in seminary, this guy came in and said, hey, man, you look like Bryce Harper. Everybody tell you that? Yeah, I hear it all the time. I hear it. I don't, I don't see it, but I hear it all the time. And then a week would go by, and he'd come in and be like, hey, man. Hey, Bryce. How you doing, Bryce? And I was like, huh, all right, man. And then he'd start to come in, and he'd say, hey, man, you played a heck of a game last night, Bryce. And, like, he's wearing a Washington hat. And I was like, man, this guy has lost his mind. And then he'd come, the last time I ever saw the guy, he'd come in, he'd be like, hey, dude, what happened last night at the bottom of the eighth? Can you explain that to me? And I'm looking at my boss, and I was like, I'm about to end up on, like, Dateline. <laughs> this guy talked to me like I was Bryce Harper. Only problem is, when we look at the Bible here, you know, it, I could have gone along with it. I could be like, yeah, I'm Chris Kyle, just reincarnated, whatever. I, yeah, I'm Bryce Harper. I could have listened to the outside voices telling me who I was. I could have listened to the outside voices and those around me in my community, community, community telling me who I was to them. I could have enjoyed all the praise of all, of all the falsehoods, right? But I knew who I was. I was born Kirk Morris, the son of a, of, of a, of a firefighter and a police chief. I'm a fifth-generation tradesman. I am just as hard as the granite of the Appalachian Mountains. And Jesus has saved me. And he determines who I am. But you see, Jerusalem and Israel, they haven't done that. They've listened to everybody around them. Worship by our God. Swear to our God. Where is your God? They listened to all the voices around them, and they bowed down. They cowed down. Chapter 3, verse 11. In that day you will feel no shame because of all of your deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proud, exalting ones, and you will never again be haughty on my holy mountain. But... Whoo, boy, those words matter, just like perhaps. But I will leave among you a humble and lowly people. And they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. You ever wonder, like, I don't, are you there today? Are you there today? Thinking about that psalm. The Lord is ever-present to help in the time of trouble and the righteous run into him. Does that give you trouble in your heart? Oh, but how can I run into how can I run into him and hide? I'm so defiled. I'm, I'm I've got more in common with the people of Zephaniah than I have in the Savior in whom I, I've linked myself to. Oh, but you see, you're not you're not righteous and running into Jesus because of your good deeds and and because of who you are. You're you're righteous and you can run into him, that high tower, that mighty fortress, because he has made you righteous. He has made you humble and low. He has brought you into him. He was the sacrifice. You see, in the Old Testament, God hates sin so much because he is going to do something about it. And that something about it is sending Jesus to rescue sinners. And look at this. In the midst of all of this that's going on, this God of the city is in the city. He is there and they don't care. He is there and they don't want to listen to him. He is there and they don't want to love him. He is there and they are not seeking after him. Like it says in verse chapter in, in chapter 3 verse 5, the Lord is righteous within her. And he now he is saying, I've been here all along. If you're here today and you feel like God is a thousand miles away, who moved? 
He loves you, church. He loves you, sinner. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you don't have to be that way. That's what I told Chad last night. I love about Zephaniah. This is a call to immediate repentance. Immediate action. It is not, hey, come to church and make your way to Jesus. And eventually we'll get you squared away someday. It is today is the day of salvation. Jesus is holding out and stretching out his hand to you like he did in chapter 1 of this book of Zephaniah. When God stretches out his hand in the Old Testament, it is the same thing as Jesus saying, verily, verily, in the New Testament. Meaning, I'm about to show you something that only I can do. I'm stretching my hand out to pour out wrath on Judah and Jerusalem because they have forsaken me. But I've been within her the entire time. Verse 13 of chapter 3. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong and tell no lies, nor will a deceitful tongue be found in their mouths, for they will feed and lie down. Shout for joy, O daughter of Zion, shout in triumph. O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away his judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. Don't fear, church. The king is in your midst. What? There is not an ounce of sin in you that he cannot get out. There is nothing that will disqualify you ever from being forgiven by Jesus. My daughters and my wife has heard this over the past several years. Something has wrecked my soul. In the same way in the Old Testament, you hear God say time after time after time again, I will be their God and they will be my people. I will be their God and they will be my people. He doesn't say, I'm going to love them really hard and maybe they'll like me. I will be their God and they will be my people. Even when they don't want it, I'm going to be their God and they will be my people. Isn't that a beautiful thing? What a king that is. The pursuit of God, first pursuit, first starts with his pursuit of us. Dead men don't cry for help. The Bible tells us we were dead in our trespasses and our sins. It is not you out there floating around in a life jacket saying, help me, Jesus. Dead men don't talk. Dead men can't grasp. Dead men don't pray. It is him saying, come forth. Come forth out of the grave. It is him yanking you up and saying, live. I'll put in you a new heart. I'll remove a heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will write my law on your heart. Because why? How can he do this? Because he's king. Why is Jesus so loving and quick to save and kind to us? Because Jesus is like his father. Jesus doing the will of the father in the New Testament. We see the heart of the father in the Old Testament. God is in the city. Even when the city don't want him there. God is in the city when there's nothing but sinfulness and corruption. God is in the city when there's nothing but hopelessness. God was in Corinth whenever Paul walks into Corinth and he says, go on, keep preaching, keep talking. I have many people in this city. God is in this portion of Raleigh whenever the city could give a rat's behind about him. Because why? He loves the unlovable. And then he sent Jesus on the day of the Lord whenever Christ cried out in a manger and the gates of hell rattled. And shepherds fell down. And then that man grew up and the stone was rolled away. And the guards fell down like dead men. He died on the cross. He rose on the third day. He loved you. And now all of creation is groaning, saying, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. And the church, we cannot sit here day after day and say, I hope they hear this. So-and-so needs to hear that. It is us 
We are Judah. We are Jerusalem. He is purifying us. And the beautiful thing that we see in Zephaniah displayed in Christ in the New Testament is this title of Jesus, friend of sinners. I love my wife. I've outkicked my coverage. And I don't know why she's with me. She deserves so much better. She has seen me on my best days and she has seen me on my worst. But she's always there. And I'm always going to be there for her. That's a beautiful marriage. When you're still with somebody, when you know every reason why you shouldn't be. Guess what? That's Christ. That's not my wife. You see, Jesus is the friend of sinners. And it, why he's the friend of sinners? Because he's in the city in Zephaniah, in Zephaniah. He is declaring a people for him to be a remnant. Jesus is the friend of sinners and because he knows every reason why he shouldn't be your friend. And he loves you anyway. He redeems you anyway. He pursues you like the hound of heaven that he is anyway. What a big and mighty God, church. That's your king. That's your king. And as my brother said earlier, the capstone, in my opinion, of Zephaniah is verse 16. In that day it will be said to Jerusalem, Do not be afraid, O Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with sounds and shouts of joy. Isn't that amazing? That after all of that turmoil, after all of that disobedience, he's still saying there's still room for a few more cripples at the table. There's still more, there's still more room for you to be loved. There's still more room. There's nothing that you can do to make me stop loving you. I will give you time after time after time to repent and believe and to trust in me. But once you declare upon yourself that you are to trust in yourself, then all hope is lost. Because I am the propitiation for sin. So if you have a hard time with the wrath of the Old Testament, if God loved you so much to send his only begotten son, it wasn't solely his love for you. It was his hatred for sin. If he was willing, Isaiah 53 verse 10, for it pleased the father to crush his son. If he was willing to strike down and kill his son, send his son to be killed, for our sin. It is not a little thing for us to sit back and say, well, you know, I thought Jesus loves everybody. He does, but he has come to redeem and clean you up. Sin's a big deal. So we've constantly got to be killing it. And so we look at Zephaniah and we're like, so how does that apply to my life? I know I should be thinking about this for myself and not thinking about other people. I should, not, I should not run to the high places and worship other things in my life other than God. I should not be a functional atheist and just live, profess Christ and live with no resurrection power. John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Love John chapter Nothing has, cap, nothing has raptured my heart more over the past three years than John chapter 4. Jesus' disciples cruising into Samaria. The disciples go on up to get a bunch of, eat, a bunch of food to eat. Jesus stays back at the well. A woman comes out in the middle of the day. She would rather face the Middle Eastern sun than the scorn of her neighbor to draw water. And he says, give me something to drink. She says, what are you talking about? And he said, better yet, you know what? 
I give you living water that will not run dry. It'll be like an eternal spring bubbling up inside of you. And she said, but you don't, you don't know. He said, go get your husband. And she said, I have no husband. He said, you know what? You're correct because you've been married five times and the guy you're with now ain't your husband. And she's a Samaritan. She said, what are you doing talking to me? I'm a half-breed. I'm a dog to your culture. And Jesus says, but I tell you what, truly, it's not, you know the signs of the epochs. But there is coming a day, and now is, where true followers of Christ will neither worship on this mountain or your mountain. But they will worship God in what? Spirit and truth. You've got to have both. That's why this matters. That's why understanding the wrath of God matters. Worshiping God in the spirit of truth. And the woman's heart breaks. And she goes running down the mountain into Samaria. And the first missionary in Samaria was a harlot, an unfaithful woman broken and ashamed scorned by others and she goes running down the mountain and she goes come quickly come quickly you got to meet this man that told me everything about myself you got to meet this man that told me everything about myself he showed up at the well when i wasn't looking for him he showed up in the well whenever i was living in sin he showed up in the well when he was the last thing on my mind, he showed up in the well when I couldn't have earned my way to him. And he loved me. And he loved me. That's the holistic picture of the wrathful God in the Old Testament, the wrathful Father, and the salvific Son in the New Testament. Then later on in the Gospels, Jesus cleansing the temple. I love that, you know? It says, and Jesus sat down and made a whip. Hey, hey, Jesus, what you, what you doing over there? I'm about to show you what I'm doing. And he gets up cracking that thing, flipping tables over, you know. Now you're fixed by three hours. <laughs> yeah, then you, see, then you see Jesus going before, going before Rome. And they're like, hey, we're about to release Barabbas. And he said, you tell Herod that fox. Woo, that's a king right there. You tell Herod that fox that if I was part of this, my, 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 my father would be rioting in the street. You see, Jesus is not a dude walking around in a bucket of suckers wanting to hug everybody. He is king. He is Lord. He is coming again. He's the same God. He's the same God that was in Zephaniah. He's the same God that was in the city of filth. And he's going to come into your life. And he's going to be there waiting on you, pursuing you, whether you're looking for him or not. Come home. Come home. All ye who are weary, come home. That's what the old, old hymn says. And you know what? I'm grateful to be with you today to tell you that this Jesus will come into your life and he will straighten you up. He will bring you into his fellowship. He will bring you into this family. He will call you a son and a daughter. And he will call you a, a sister and a brother. And the book of Hebrews says, right before it says, let your pastors pastor you without having, uh, having any trouble, basically, because they're the shepherds and overseer of your soul. It tells us that the ultimate shepherd and overseer of your soul, Jesus Christ, your elder brother, is not ashamed of you. Is not ashamed of you, church. So whatever the outside world is telling you, like they're telling you, the Jews in, in, in this time, whatever they're saying, hey, you know what, listen up. Bow down here. Worship here. Where is your God? Did he say, whatever you hear in your heart, listen to Jesus. Because he's in the city, walking with you in the muck and the mire. Walking with you, 
pursuing you when you're unfaithful, chasing after you. He loves you. He cares for you. If he can reach down to those mountains and pull a boy like me up and give me new life, he can do it to anybody else. He loves you, church. You know, it's interesting. The New Testament tells us, you know, live a life according to God, making a melody with your heart, right? You ever wonder if these shouts of joy and these songs of praise that he sings over us are to the tune of the melody of our heart? There is not one ounce of your life he doesn't see, he doesn't care for, he doesn't hurt for. That wayward child, that unfaithful spouse, that lost job, that mortgage pay payment piling up, that scholarship running out, that longing to have a spouse, that longing to have a family, that addiction, that brokenness. There is not one ounce of your hurtful, painful existence that he does not he is not willing to walk into and reveal himself to you as the ultimate prize, as the ultimate treasure, as the ultimate king. And so I'm going to say today, perhaps, perhaps if you cry out to God and, repentance and, and repent and believe, then grace will be poured out to you. Hope will be poured out to you. Life and life abundant will be poured out to you. I'm not going to tell you that it will be okay. I'm not going to tell you that you won't have dark nights of the soul. I'm not going to tell you come to Jesus and you'll have everything you ever want. I'm saying come to Jesus and he will be all that you will ever need. He's a good God. He's a great king. And we are in his service. And man... I hope that as we wake up tomorrow morning, if we listen and we seek with all of our heart and we are obedient, you'll start to hear those shouts of joy and songs of praise that he sings over you. Oh, wicked and corrupt us. And God the Father coming in to rescue us. That's a big Jesus. So I'm sorry if I went over time, but I, like I, told, I warned you that what I said about Chad wasn't part of it. But uh, I want to pray with you. Father, we ask that you will show yourself to us in the midst of our most unlovely times. God, when the doubt's creeping in, when that child wavered, when we're claiming but living like functionally like we don't believe, remind us that you're in the city. Remind us that you love us even though you know every reason why you shouldn't love us. Father, meet the needs. We're your remnant. Restore the fortunes. Pay the light bill. Heal the addiction. Free us from lust. Help us love our, our partners in marriage. Help us to serve you in our singleness. Help us to disciple our children. Help us to be slow to anger and quick to forgive like our Father. Help us to go on teaching and preaching in this city. For you got a lot of people for your kingdom right around this Asian market. 
Thank you, Jesus. You're not ashamed of us. That every breath in your service is one well spent. Help us to live a life worth living and die a death worth dying. Heal this broken world. All these people we read about today, God, we see rockets going every which way over there right now. And we see the atrocities of war and the wickedness of man on full display. And we rejoice knowing that in the midst of beheadings, in the midst of hatred, in the midst of racism, that you're in the city. <laughs> God, soothe our hearts. You promised you said you would quiet our hearts today with your love. Quiet our hearts with your love. When it looks like World War III is about to crack off, the economy's in the tank, we got more month than money. We've worked and worked and worked, and we think we all our hopes and dreams are passing away. God, show us where you're at in the city and let us run into you, our refuge. Thank you that through your son Christ we can crawl up in the king's lap. Thank you, God, that you show up in our most unlovable moments. Thank you that as we're about to take of the bread and the cup, that Christ was spilled for, for us. Christ was the sacrifice. Christ paid for the, our sin, a debt we couldn't pay, lived a life we couldn't live, and died a death that we should have. But then he got up out of that grave. And so today, God, as we take this cup and we take the bread, Lord, go before us, protect us, guide us. But with every swallow and every crunch, rattle the gates of hell. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.